Welcome to the Brick Business Show, where we talk about Lego investing, Lego reselling, entrepreneurship, and how people all around the world are using the thing that they love, Lego, to create an income and build a business. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another interview, my absolute favorite thing to do. And I'm here with uh, with Kate from Wanderlusting Lawyer on YouTube turned Lego investor. So we're going to talk about Lego investing, buying Lego sets and holding them while values go up. We're going to talk about selling on Facebook Marketplace, which is a platform that a lot of people are ignoring and maybe they should be paying more attention. We're also going to talk about Kate's life with travel and how she uses her Lego investing business to fund her travel and uh, really nifty strategies that anybody can really tap into in order to get free travel, free hotels and flights and different things by buying Lego sets. So tons of fun there. So Kate, thank you so much for being here. Welcome uh, to the Brick Business Show. How are you doing? Thanks. It's great to be here. I've been you know, watching your channel for a while and I can't believe now I'm sitting here talking to you in person, but I'm really excited to, to get to chat with you and dive a little bit into my background and see where the conversation takes us and hi to everybody out there who's going to see this. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, we've known each other for a while now and we've kind of chatted back and forth and it's been really interesting to see some of your journey progress, um, you know, and some of your strategy. It's a little bit different than, you know, some of the other people that I talk to on the on the on the uh, regular. So I'm definitely excited to dig in a little bit more about that. Uh, but before we do, I'd love to learn a little more about your background, how you got here. So um, I guess, you know, starting with your uh, general or broader background pre-Lego investing, uh, because as I take it, you're actually a lawyer. Is that right? Yeah. So you might have guessed from my the name of my YouTube channel, Wanderlusting Lawyer. Um, I am an attorney in my day and often night and weekend job for any other lawyers out there. Uh, I went to law school a while ago now. I'm not going to admit how long ago, but um, I've loved travel. Like Travel has been a big part of my life ever since I was a little kid. Both my parents studied abroad and then my older sister did too. And if you have an older sibling, you know, you like want to do everything they do. So I got my first taste of travel in college when I studied abroad in Spain. And then I taught abroad in Spain for a year before going to law school. And I just, you know, I fell in love with, I speak Spanish. I love meeting people from different cultures, experiencing different parts of the world uh, that I'd only ever seen, you know, in videos and TV. And so that that's really been kind of um, two two poles in my life for a while now is my legal career. Um, done, I've done different things in that and actually I've lived in and practiced in multiple different states, uh, but then also making sure that I never fell into the trap of just getting so um, fixated on work that I forgot to see the world. You know, I didn't want to say, hey, my one travel experience was that study abroad experience many years ago and I haven't my passport's expired since I knew that was not going to be my path. So, um, you know, I just, in all the years of practice, I've, one of the smartest things I think I've done is when I have changed jobs, I've taken multiple months off, even though that often has created, you know, not a financial burden, but you, you sacrifice those months of pay so to go see the world or to, to pursue other dreams. And then in some of the work I've done, I've also gotten a chance to travel. So it's been a really nice, um, I think, dynamic that I've been able to put together of making sure that that stays a big part of my life. And I think it's really served me well in my work because I've learned additional languages since then. I've gotten to see business contexts outside of the United States. 
Um, and even in the Lego business, you know, sometimes, especially in Facebook Marketplace, you get messages in different languages. And I can respond back if it's Spanish or French uh, in those languages and people's native language. And so that's led to um, relationships that might have stalled if they if we are unable to communicate. So that's a little bit about me. I always love, you know, just learning more about how different backgrounds can come to play in the Lego investing business. And, you know, everybody brings something to the table, some different skill sets. And it's it's so interesting to me. So I definitely want to double click down a little bit on, you know, work or on making your work and your career or your business fit around the things that you want to do in your life, because you come from a an industry that is typically the most hardworking, you know, uh, hustle mentality that you can ever see, uh, the corporate work 12 hours a day mentality of right. most, you know, and uh, it's quite cliche and I'm not really sure, obviously from the outside looking in, if it really is like that across the board in the legal industry, but it is typical, uh, for, you know, for attorneys and lawyers to work, uh, you know, spend their entire lives working, and forget to live right and to right. not go see the world and so for you to be in that world and then be so determined that you are not going to be like that you are going to travel you're going to see the world you're going to learn languages uh you're going to explore it's a little bit to me it feels a little bit like you're kind of breaking out from that um that hustle 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 mentality but meanwhile You've also built side businesses. So, you know, it's not like you're you're coasting, you're, you know, you're working harder than most people are while also enjoying your time. So I guess um, it was like, am I right on that? Is it, is, it a, is it a case where you're kind of a little bit different than many people in, in the, you know, other attorneys out there and having to make sure that you're prioritizing travel in your life? Um, it's probably been a little difficult to make sure that you're kind of putting the effort into it because you're so passionate about it? Yeah, so I definitely would say I'm different. And that's something that, you know, younger in my career was you're trying to really just figure out the ropes, right? What are What is expected of me? And I mean, my philosophy from the beginning has always been know the expectations, do your work, do it excellently, and then you know, you should be able to do what you want with your time outside of that. So in the law world, there are billable expectations, right? You're meant, it's not just hours nine to five in the office. They want in those hours, you producing a certain amount of work that is then billed to the client. So that's part of where the pressure comes because to bill eight hours in a day, you may be working 11 or 12 just because of other meetings and obligations. But as long as you're meeting those expectations, I think um, at least we've been seeing during COVID, and especially since COVID, I guess we're still in COVID and we may be for a while, but move away from this concept of FaceTime at least, or at least a relaxing of those rules, right? Of you should be in the office, people should see you sitting there knowing you're be, doing your work to, I mean, your work speaks for itself, right? You can, you do your work and you get it done. But I definitely can say in my experience, I have been someone that has tended to travel maybe not more often, but certainly further away. You know, I was not really trying to go to the to the beach. When I, when I used to work in Pittsburgh, a lot of people went to the beach for the summer, for a week in the summer. I was jetting off doing a Sunday to Sunday trip to Europe because that's just where, you know, I, where I wanted to go. So that's been something I suppose to navigate, but I've always been a 
pretty hard worker. I was a, a swimmer. I was a collegiate swimmer as well. And I think if anyone out there has done either college sports, especially swimming, it takes a lot of, you really have to figure out your schedule because you often have practice two hours in the morning and two hours in the afternoon, also trying to fit in schoolwork. In my case, also trying to study for the bar exam. So I just became pretty good about figuring out, I don't, not just multitasking, but figuring out priorities, right? Um, which is not always easy because I think, especially I've heard for our generation, we tend to get overwhelmed by actually having lots of small things to do because we want to be able to prioritize the big things, but having a, you know, a lot of things on the list. So I just have had to get good on figuring out, um, on making that list and figuring out what needs to get crossed off first. And it right. certainly gets easier as you go on in, in your career. Um, but yeah, it's something I really had to work to protect that time then I'm able to get away and also pursue avenues to fund it because yes, lawyers are thought of as being a high paid profession and traditionally it is, but we also tend to finish with a lot of loans. So, you know, that, that kind of comes in as well as are there ways I can be supplementing my income without distracting from obviously my key, uh, commitment, which is to my, to my, to my job, my, my W2. Love it. I, I'm really getting a picture into, um, you know, how disciplined you you must be to be able to to juggle all of these different things. And I didn't know that you were also, you know, swimming uh, in college and different things. And it, it, the time management that comes into managing all the different things that you're talking about here, um, it's not easy. And it's, the, it, you know, it's, it's something that takes so much discipline. Um, I want to, you know, and we'll definitely get to, we'll transition a little bit into the Lego business. Uh, but before we do that, um, I do want to talk a little bit more about your, your mentality around having a side business in general, right? Because as you mentioned, sure. you know, having a job as an attorney, it is high paying, but you do have a lot of college loans. And so um, it is smart, right? To start thinking, what other sources of income can I have? But meanwhile, you have you're balancing uh, a very intense career with your love for travel and you're all, you're already strapped for time. And then you decide I'm going to create a YouTube channel to start documenting my travel. And I'm going to start uh, an e-commerce business or, you know, in, in your case also selling locally, we'll talk about that. Um, what was some of the mentality behind I'm going to go and start a side business now? Uh, was it something that you always wanted to do? Was there any moment where you figure, you know, you got inspired to do that or how did that begin for you? Well, if you want to talk about where it really began, I was nine years old and my best friend was also named Kate and we created a neighborhood business. It was called K and K incorporated. We distributed flyers in the neighborhood and it was just, you know, odd jobs. If you needed your plants watered or your mail brought in when you're on vacation and I don't really know why I wanted to be making money. I probably wanted to buy Beanie Babies. I think that was my first investment uh, foray into investing. I still have them uh, somewhere in the house, but I'm sure I wanted to buy something and my parents were like, yeah, no, we're not paying for that. So I guess I've had a side hustle um, or just a hustle mentality since I was younger and kind of had some jobs, you know, in high school and um, in the summers in college and law school. But then when I started working, I don't know. I think I just have a very, very inquisitive, curious brain. I'm just kind of always thinking about different things. And I think we've all had that moment where we feel like we have a great idea and 
we're overwhelmed and we don't pursue it. And I had a situation where I had this great idea for an app, right? This is in the early stages of apps back in, I'd say this was probably 2012, something like that. And it was an app I wanted personally that I couldn't find. So I was like, I'm going to do this for once. I'm actually going to pursue uh, an idea that I have all the while, you know, working full time and had a team and, you know, got a decent amount into the development. And then it just kind of the, the, the team leader, unfortunately left that organization. And then the new team leader that came in wanted to double the price and things like that. And, and I just, I was too nervous to go into more having finished law school with six figures of debt. I was just too nervous to undertake any serious kind of debt, even though I could see the potential for um, it really paying off. I think I have a little bit more of that conservative approach when it comes to debt, which reflects in the, in the approach to my Lego investing business I've taken because I have been so excited to pay off this big debt that I have from law school, even though, I mean, you know, not all debt is the same. I've just said, it'll just feel really nice to not have that lingering over me. So I unfortunately didn't finish that idea, but that's the same time that I, um, saw a show on the travel channel about old to about vintage toys some guy named jordan i can't remember his last name now he went around buying vintage toys and i think he bought some poly pockets and that was a toy i loved as a kid that my mom gave away one year and i was so mad and i was like wow this stuff is actually worth money i started hitting up um like church sales and garage sales and at that time you know you're just paying cash there wasn't even the credit card readers back in those days. So I was, that's when I got into eBay and I just would start to resell. Um, and that's when I first came across Lego. I came across a, somebody selling their Harry Potter collection, which at that time, Harry Potter had just the first wave, they had stopped making them. So the value had really started to go up. Uh, and that's when I saw kind of the reselling business as a viable side business, because I could do it on the weekends, right? When I wasn't in the office. I could go to the garage sales and um, eBay wasn't particularly time consuming. You just take the picture and send it when it, when it sells. So um, I think that's been my approach has been finding something that brings in some extra income or in other cases, as we'll talk about other types of perks and yeah, I just enjoy it. I meet people. I get to bring some of my, the skills I've learned through being a lawyer uh, into my side business. I think being a woman in this space is rare. And I think because I have a lot of uh, experience negotiating and dealing with sometimes louder, often male voices, I'm very comfortable with that. And, um, you know, that's helped me figure out what makes me happy when it comes to just a side hobby slash hustle. I love that. Yeah. And I definitely want to talk a little more about that, about the negotiation and different things, because when you're sourcing your inventory locally, obviously, it's a big part of it. And, you know, being able to get your inventory for the right prices, but also know how to have a bit of a backbone when you're negotiating prices and different things. So important. And anybody who has a background that gives them some skill set or some experience in that space, it's really going to be like a superpower. Um, when, so you're mentioning that, you know, the reselling business caught your attention for a number of reasons, but one of those was you could do it at the weekends outside of your busy schedule. Um, you could also, you know, put your store on pause and go travel. And, you know, it's, you're not 
beholden to, you know, a handful of clients that are going to be knocking down your door when you're away in Europe. And it's the business that you could mold around your life and do in your own time. Um, and so you really started with broad reselling and, you know, like kind of, I guess, can you take us through a little bit about when you first looked at reselling as a viable business, side business, um, what were some of the item categories that were important to you? I know you mentioned some collectible toys and different things. Did you stay there? Did you look at shoes, antiques? Like what were some of the item categories? And how did the first couple of years of being an online reseller play out for you? Sure. Yeah, I think with, with shoes and clothes and things like that, it was more sometimes I'd resell some of my um, higher end stuff, I think, because, you know, I was in a, at least at that time, the professional setting was requiring really not, like business attire, um, and going to court and things like that. Sometimes I would resell those items because you could get sometimes half or more of the value back. And when you're spending $100, $200 on an item, sometimes you want to recoup some of that cost. Or just when I was out looking for toys at Goodwill, sometimes I'd take a quick look at the clothing sections. And the area I've always found to me most valuable has always been outerwear which I live in Florida now. So unfortunately there are a few um, really great options, but you know, sometimes you can find awesome North Face items, Kodo Paxi, just different brands like that, that I would be on the lookout. And I actually at that time started getting a little bit into reselling, even just at face value once you considered fees, because I realized with one of my credit cards, I was earning like 6% cash back at the grocery store. So I, there may be more limitations on this now because I haven't done it in a while, but I would go buy like $1,000 worth of gift cards from the grocery store to TJ Maxx or Marshalls. And I would go next, until so I'm getting 60 bucks. I would go next door to Marshalls and buy, I think Michael Kors was always a really good brand in terms of outerwear and wallets and things like that, or Fossil, different brands like that. Then resell them. And, you know, if I make a five or $10 profit, I'm not disappointed. It's, it's, a profit, I've gotten the cash back on my credit cards, plus I'm earning points that I wanted for travel. So for me at that time, I mean, I thought I discovered like the secret world <laughs> of not gaming the system because it's legal. And I, as a lawyer, tend to be fairly cautious about all that stuff, but just making, I guess, figuring out how to use my time to bring back those benefits in a way that was bizarrely enjoyable to me. It was kind of like a treasure hunt um, to to, to look, go look for those deals. And so uh, sometimes I'd venture into those sidelines, but it was really, yeah, vintage toys, um, anything that was sealed. I was at, at, like, especially at Goodwill, anything that was sealed, it was just the easiest to sell because you didn't have to represent anything about condition, right? You didn't have to um, itemize or sorry, like go through the item and see what might've been missing represent, you know, this is bent, this is broken. So that was always what I would look for. But then um, bought a, re a really cool vintage lunchbox collection one time. And those, you know, it was fun for me because that was a little bit before my time. So I got to learn all about the nostalgia of that product line. Uh, and when my sales really took off was when I got um, just through going to a market and buying a lot of stuff from a gentleman. And he started asking me questions. He became I guess my dealer for all intents and purposes, he would buy storage units and he loved all the car memorabilia that was hit car parts, anything cars was his wheelhouse. He had all his buyers, but he didn't know what to do with the toys. And so he would give me a great price because I was taking everything off his hands in bulk, probably paying for the unit 
right? That's always as a reseller, your first piece is in one way or another, getting back your original investment and then making money off of whatever he would sell. So that really helped me accelerate my business. Uh, but then I moved away and kind of left it behind for a couple of years because I was in a, a different job and was I didn't have the same connections for reselling. So I kept reselling through the inventory I had on hand, but for several years, I wasn't doing any new purchasing. Got you. Yeah. Um, and you know, you made a, an offhand mention of your credit card strategy there. And I, I'm excited to dig in a little bit deeper on that. Um, where was the Lego, you know, beginning for you at that point? Because it sounds so you, you very much came from a reselling into Lego, um, you know, selling other items, learning eBay, learning how to source, uh, you know, and analyze profit, profitability and different things, and then discovered Lego as an item category. Um, how did that first come to your attention? I know you mentioned that you saw a great deal that, you know, someone was kind of selling their collection of Harry Potter sets. Um, was that the moment where you realized that sets go up in value or did that come later? Yeah, that was definitely, well, that was the moment I realized that Lego was crazy valuable. <laughs> I didn't know that really before. Um, I had, I, I was really more into Playmobil and stuff as a kid. I just hadn't paid attention to Lego, but I loved Harry Potter. I grew up loving the books and, you know, I know this will be a little bit controversial. I like the movies for what they are, but, you know, I just, I was really into that whole world. And when I was, when I saw, a, like I said, I always looked for sealed items. And this guy was selling a collection of, you know, maybe 15 vintage sealed sets, including the original Diagon Alley, um, and some really nice, really nice pieces. And so when I did my research, which was always either on eBay or I think that I had paid for a subscription to a site called WorthPoint. I don't know if you've seen that site before. They actually would give a lot, they would give history, sales history of up to a year, which was very helpful if I found rare items that hadn't sold on eBay recently. But I realized, I was like, I can get these and I think resell them instantly for double. But at that time, I, I thought this would be like your traditional stock investment. I thought I was going to buy it and hold on to it until I was like 60. <laughs> and now they were going to be worth, you know, a million dollars. And if they weren't, I would just build a Harry Potter room full of Legos and be happy since I liked Harry Potter. So, I mean, it was nice because my first foray into it was actually buying something I liked. And that if I lost my original investment of, let's say, I think it was $800, something like that. At the end of the day, I was still going to be have fun building the product. But then my eyes were open to the value of Lego. And I remember I, I had found like a really, um, a pretty rare uh, train set. And then I found one of the Winter Villages sets. And I actually took a lot of joy in, in rebuilding them, seeing if all the pieces were there. And then any missing pieces, I would buy them because I always just prefer to sell as 100% complete. I find that the sale moves more quickly. Um, so that was my approach, my initial foray into Lego investing. Uh, and then I was trying to think as I was getting ready for this, what got me back into it? And I know my attention was peaked again in 2018 when I saw the Harry Potter Lego line was coming back. And I had two thoughts. One was, oh no, my investments are about to tank in value. <laughs> and two, oh, maybe now I missed that first wave. Maybe I need to start investing now. Um, but I still hadn't quite reached the realization of 
or sort of, I didn't understand the concept of turnover. I was just like, oh, I'm just supposed to buy all these and keep them again, like your 401k until I'm 60. And then I'll sell them off as I'm, um, you know, liquidating my portfolio for living expenses. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, I mean, the fact that you were coming into the new Harry Potter wave with previous investments gives a bit of context on how long ago it was that you actually first decided to become a Lego investor. Um, and so you, you know, you've been doing this for quite some time. Um, but when was it, when was the moment where you decided to really double down on Lego investing? Was that, you know, the later wave of Harry Potter sets? Was that the moment where you started buying new condition sets, for example? Uh, because a lot of the examples you, you mentioned there were great deals that you found. Someone was selling something that they um, didn't know the value of, but it sounds like a lot of that would have been used sets. You were adding pieces to make sure that it was fully complete. When did you start buying new sets and selling them away as an investment? So I, with the initial wave of Harry or with the new Harry Potter sets, I did buy a few when I'd be, you know, at Target or Walmart, I'd just pick one up here and there. I really had no strategy other than, oh, adding them to my existing portfolio of Harry Potter and keeping them for a while. And I, I think when I first started really getting back into it was with the Stranger Things Lego. I always had an understanding of how pop pop culture can affect investments. Um, But I had missed out on, I had missed out on buying it until uh, they came back for maybe like a two week period of time. They just popped back into the Lego store. And I remember just having a realization of, you know, this show's super popular. It, we haven't had a new season because I've been waiting for a new season myself for like three or four years. We haven't had a new season in forever. And now the set's not going to be available. I'm going to buy these sets and see what happens. And that happened in conjunction with, uh, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure at some point, American Airlines, which had been my primary airlines because I was traveling a decent amount to uh, South America for work. Um, and so had just been getting some status there and racking up points. They totally revamped their loyalty program to allow you to earn status even exclusively on spend. And so that's when I started to see, so it was basically, okay, I put money in my card, I get, I get miles plus points towards status, and I'm somebody who enjoys having comfortable travel experiences. Um, I also, this was, it was kind of, um, sort of that perfect recipe, right? Where this was also the time where production, Lego was having production issues or kind of most manufacturers were because of COVID and the supply chain. So a lot of things were out of stock and it was at the time where you could basically, you know, flip sets still in the store, not even talking about stranger things, which had retired, even existing sets. Um, you, if you could get your hands on them, you could flip them for a nice profit, right? One that makes it at least worth your time. And so that's when I started to really pay attention. Um, and then it wasn't until I want to, so that was maybe January of, uh, 2021, I want to say. And then it was when I discovered channels like yours and I started to reframe my concept of what Lego investing is. It's not just buying and holding them forever. It's if you want you know, the return, the compounding effect, you have to be buying and reselling. And so that's when I started to get more excited about it. And I started to see my, you know, my miles grow with American and see how this 
I could create a strategy that worked for me that hopefully wouldn't, you know, take too much time because I still want to have free time as well. Love it. Yeah. And it's very intentional, right? Because you got into it with the intention of uh, the travel hacking strategies that you would then develop. Um, and, you know, and again, we're going to jump into this soon. Uh, but just to for anybody who's not really kind of following what we're talking about and anyone who's not in the U.S. where these systems might be a little bit different, uh, when you spend money on credit cards, you earn points. Some of the airlines have credit cards um, in their name. And uh, what Kate just talked about there was American Airlines started to give you status where you'd get, you know, benefits, a lot of benefits when you're a certain level of tier of status with American Airlines. Uh, even when you're not flying, you're getting, you know, status when you're spending on a credit card. So then you buy a ton of Lego inventory on your credit card, you get the airline status. And so there's a lot of different strategies when it comes to credit card points, uh, you know, airline tiers and reward programs and different things like that. And we will jump into some of that a little more. So you discovered Lego investing again. You started to realize that sets go up in value. Um, Stranger Things was a phenomenal one to start with. We all saw what happened six months later. The new show came out. Uh, the set doubled in value, actually more than doubled in value. It was selling in the U.S. on Amazon at $500 from $200 MSRP six months after retirement. Um, so what a way to, I guess, quickly see the possibilities with Lego investing. And then um, what was your plan for sale at the time? Because, you know, you and I have talked offline before that you do, you love Facebook Marketplace as a, as a main yeah. uh, place for sale. Was that always the original plan? Uh, or were you initially thinking eBay and how, I guess, are you still doing some of both? Are you kind of on multiple platforms or are you mostly on Facebook? How did you think about, and how do you still think about, um, you know, the breakdown of the selling platforms? I mean, originally I think my exit strategy, I didn't have much of one because I thought, again, I was going to be holding for a while. I think my, yeah, my original strategy was if I buy, let's say the maximum, I think the home alone house, I really wanted to get my hands on because I saw that how hard of, you know, a set it was to find. And so I said, okay, I'm going to buy the max, the Lego store, uh, lego.com max of, I think it was three. I'll flip one immediately, even if I just break even totally fine, I have the points and then I'll, I'll, I have my money back on that set. I have the credit card points. I've earned on all of them and I'll hold on to the other two. And then, um, so I usually eBay was the way that I would sell those. And then I just started to get more as I really dove into how the world of Lego investing works. I started to get so much more excited about it. And I think like a lot of us started to get like buyer syndrome. So I was just on a buying tear for a while. And, you know, I made, I definitely made mistakes. I definitely bought things way too early, right? Because um, I assumed they would stay really hard to get. I didn't have enough of an understanding or I guess appreciation for the fact that the supply chain would fix its problems and, and sets would probably become available again. And so then, um, I don't want to say overextended myself financially, but I was in a point where I had spent a lot of money buying sets that started taking up a lot of room in the house. And I was like, okay, I need to really get serious about what my strategy is because it's not keeping hundreds of Lego sets at home. Um, there's always the option, of course, of like storage unit, but I just, 
haven't moved there yet, but I just wanted a new strategy. And so it really was, um, I don't know if it, I had sold other things with success on Facebook marketplace, just like furniture, right? When you're moving and when you're downsizing, just furniture. Um, so I said, you know, this seems like a nice way to, uh, avoid eBay skis and, um, just sell locally. It's very easy. Like I always, it's just kind of annoying, right? To try to find the right size box and then to shape it. And then it's, you know, I never really wanted, I was just kind of lazy. I would always just estimate shipping fees and then tend to underestimate. And so then I'd be losing money on shipping. So I just kind of wanted a new approach that simplified things, especially since I was mostly working from home at that point. And so to be clear, there are two methods, right? Of Facebook marketplace selling. There's the eBay method, which is it's similar, right? Somebody buys it and you ship it. Um, which is not, I've done that a few times, but it's not traditionally what I do. And then there's the local pickup option, or if you want to offer delivery, that's where I really focus on. Um, and so I really started to see the value of that method right around the Christmas season last year, when I said, Hey, I think I bought some of my sets a little bit early. And this is a concept you've talked about a lot is how, even when it, even when you lose money, it can be a really solid business decision to sell at minimize your loss, but sell, recoup that capital and then reinvest in sets. You'll be able to then resell for a profit much more quickly. And so it originally started with that. And then as the holiday drew closer, I started getting messages nonstop about, you know, things I realized things that I had bought were actually sold out. And so now I didn't even have to take a loss, right? I could at least sell at face value plus tax or whatever, try to recoup that. Um, so that's when I started to see it as a valuable method and not having to ship things is just my joy in life now. <laughs> I think, and I think that's one of the reasons why um, I just, I, I will get into the Amazon. I am, like I can sell on Amazon. I've just, honestly, because this has been working for what I want it for right now. And because I still, my collection is really only, or my investment is really only reaching peak sales time now-ish because I've only been investing for, you know, a year, two years. Um, I've just enjoyed not having to go to the post office, not having to package this stuff because innately in me is I want, I always want my buyer to be really happy. I think that's a lawyer thing as well. Like I, I'm, and I hate when customer service is bad. So I always try to deliver like a 10 star customer service experience. So when I was shipping, I was bubble wrapping so carefully. I was putting in all the extra packaging, you know, things like that. And if you do that, I'm not the person that is like, do all the numbers and figure out, okay, if four people aren't happy, you will still make more money by saving your time here. I'm just going to do what feels good for me because the second I stop enjoying this, I, I probably just won't keep doing it. Um, since I do, I am lucky enough to have a full-time uh, job otherwise. But that's how I really got into Facebook Marketplace. And I like it. I have made like a lot of connections. Um, you know, I've, I've had people come message me for one set and being a salesperson, I suppose, in a sense, you know, I say, hey, is there anything else you're looking for? And I've put together really nice deals that way. And um, I like the personal touch of it. I think people are more trusting that they, they know, I mean, more or less, they know that you're not going to, I guess, screw them over. And if you do, they know, they now know where you live. <laughs> so there's like a really big sense there of um, 
keeping your customers happy. And so that's something that I found works really well. Takes, I mean, right, it takes how long to take a picture, put it on Facebook Marketplace. Someone says they're interested, they swing by, you step out for one minute, that's it. I mean, it's just really, it's been a really nice compliment in my life to yeah. not have to go to the post office and do all the shipping. Yeah. And you shared, you know, a handful of different pros for, for Facebook marketplace there. You know, you mentioned uh, the listing process and listing is something that causes friction for a lot of e-commerce business owners. A lot of people don't want to sell online because they're afraid of how long it might take them to actually create a listing on eBay, take a picture, write a description, write a title, fill out all that detail that they want. And um, Facebook do make it super easy and it's, you can do it on your phone. You can take snap, you know, a quick photo um, obviously better photos will get you more interest, uh, but you can adjust and you can get better at that over time. Just make sure that you don't have tons of clutter in your photo, right? Take a photo of just the item you're selling. Right. Uh, and then, you know, it's visible. You don't, you're not taking it at nighttime with no lights on, right? It's like you can, people can tell what they're getting. If there's any flaws on the packaging, take a photo of the packaging. So you, you they can tell if, if there's flaws and, um, listing is quite quick and easy. Uh, and then, you know, also, one thing you mentioned there, I definitely want to dig in a little deeper on, which is the ability to create repeat business because you can, um, you know, you can ask them, is there any other set that you're looking for? You, they reached out to you to buy the Lego Technic Porsche and you ask them, you know, do you also want the Ferrari? Cause I've got that here. Uh, and there you go. You've just basically multiplied the revenue you're going to get from this one customer uh, and you've also created a relationship and now you've become the Lego person for them. It's not just one transaction anymore. They're a Lego collector. They now know that they can go to you for all retired sets. Um, you know, maybe you live down the street and it's very accessible for them, for you. So um, I think that's a massive, massive benefit of Facebook Marketplace. Do you think, um, you know, is there, is that the kind of thing that you think being an attorney will help you with when it comes to building relationships with potential buyers on Facebook, uh, not just negotiating price, but also, you know, knowing how to communicate well so that you can get them to, you know, be a repeat, repeat customer. And also there's almost an element of sales that comes into it because you are yeah. offering other options that you have available. You are openly selling to them, which is not something you usually have to do on eBay or Amazon. Um, what are your thoughts on the characteristics of the person being important for selling on Facebook to at least maximize the opportunity. Well, it was funny because when you said that, I did remember when I was younger, I won the Girl Scout um, cookie selling competition. So I do think even pre-lawyer, I had sort of, I always had that sales mentality of just really being able to see in, in a situation, what's the right approach to take. I think I have a, tend to have a good instinct around that. Um, and I think, yeah, I think being a lawyer helps. Again, I'll say I think being a woman in a space does help because I've, I think um, maybe I'm totally wrong, but I think a lot of women tend to feel more comfortable coming to the house, right? I've, I've almost never had anybody say, can we meet in a public space? I mean, I'm happy to if, if people want to, if I have a car available or whatever, but there tends to be some trust there, I think. And yeah, I think in knowing how to talk to people, here's a good example. I had somebody contact me about a set and, you know, sometimes they ask like, well, can I ask, why are you selling this? And I said, well, I'm just, you know, I'm looking to um, invest the funds into other sets or I'm looking 
Sometimes it's for my own collection. You know, I wanted money recently for the Harry Potter gift with purchase, whatever the case may be. And she said, oh, so does that mean you open them, you play with them, and then you reseal them? I said, no, these are totally sealed and new. But if you have, you know, if you're at all concerned, please take a look at my seller profile. I think that'll, think that'll alleviate any concerns you have. And I, when I make a sale, I send everybody immediately a request for seller feedback. And I think that's really important. You know, they see I have however many five-star um, sales. And so she said, okay, thanks. Yeah, we're going to come get it. And then I think when she came and picked it up, she saw me and she saw the set and everything. She immediately responded after. She's like, oh, thank you so much again. I'm sorry that if my questions were a nuisance. And I said, no, not at all. I'm, I want you to feel good about your purchasing. And I think that's what I've seen in some of these Facebook groups on like lego i'm in a couple different groups and i've sold in those as well uh once in a while with luck but people tend to not understand how much lego is actually worth and you know want it for half the value but i see people complain all the time about or or saying their own listings if you respond is it still available i won't respond I never take that approach because it's just as easy for them to click the yes is, or is this still available button as it is for me to click yes, are you interested? And that's all I do. At the beginning, I used to write a personalized message and now I'm like, no, I mean, I'll, I'll respond automated back, but I'm always going to respond. And then I traditionally also still follow up if I haven't heard anything in a day or so. And so I think taking that approach of um, always responding, understanding that, yeah, there's going to be some frustrating experiences. Sometimes people will try to renegotiate after you already have a deal, things like that. Um, I just really know what my bottom line is. Like, I'm not going to sell it at a loss unless I'm okay taking a loss because I bought too early. And that creates a lot of negotiation leverage, I think, right? Always knowing Oh, feeling comfortable in your bottom line and not getting yourself into a situation with this business or with any business where where you're so cash strapped you have to start selling at a loss right because if you say this is this is what i need to sell it at and you believe in that then you're not getting yourself into situations where um you're hurting your business and i have more flexibility to do that um because my primary goal here is not necessarily to make money returns even like right now even though certainly who doesn't like having extra cash yes yeah that makes total sense and you did mention right there you know some potential cons of selling on facebook so um you know for example the messages that you're going to get um does that become a problem for you i know you mentioned that you know there is an automated message that people can send. They can click one little button and it says, it sends the words, is this still available? And it can be a sense of frustration or a source of frustration for a lot of sellers because you're getting tons of people messaging you with this. When you respond to them, some of them don't even reach reach out to you. You mentioned that's not really an issue because you can also hit a button to send back a response. But what about when you actually are in a discussion with someone and you're negotiating or they're asking questions about it how do you feel about the time that it takes uh, to go through those conversations and the time you need to spend on explaining the item, uh, answering questions and those kind of things before you make a sale versus something like selling on eBay or Amazon where you never have to answer any questions? Well, you you know, you will get a few, but largely the stuff will just sell. Um, is that a frustration for you? Do you think it's, you know, not as big a deal as some people may think? 
Yeah, I don't think it's as big of a deal because I think there aren't many times that a conversation will progress more than a few messages and then the person just disappears, right? I mean, and, and because I tend to sell sealed sets, you know, sometimes people say just to confirm, has this been opened? No, it is sealed. It's never been opened. Um, that's really about as far as they go. I mean, I, I'm trying to even think of a time. I've had a few times where it's a little bit frustrating um, where somebody says, yeah, I'm interested. And then they, I've had situations, this is the most frustrating where I've had people say, um, you know, I'm absolutely interested, like a hundred percent, I'm a hundred percent coming. If you want to market as pending, which I never do, um, I'm a hundred percent interested. Like basically my, my money is like, you will have my money. And then, you know, they're on vacation, you're on vacation, you follow up and I, I've decided, you know, we can't, we can't do that right now. That is a little bit frustrating just because you see, you know, okay, I'm going to sell this set, make this space, make this amount of money. But I mean, of all the frustrations I face in a professional setting, those are the least. And I enjoy, I'm a people person. You guys can probably tell um, by how much I like talking. I, it doesn't really bother me. You know, it stinks to lose a sale, potential sale, but sometimes a lot of times those people do come back and say, hey, my, my situation is different. Or, you know, around Christmas, I'm going to try to reach back out. And it's just really with the, especially if you have the Facebook Messenger app, it's just so user friendly. It's really easy to deal with that. And I just, I just go on my way if people don't, don't respond. So it's really up for me of all the platforms, it is absolutely the easiest to deal with. Yeah. And so then, you know, the second part of the transaction, obviously, is meeting up and actually handing off the item. Uh, you mentioned people coming to your house. Some sellers wouldn't want that. So you can go and meet someone in a public space if, if uh, you know, if that's your preference. Um, I would say that um, we want to try and make it take as little time as possible, right, to actually make the transaction actually happen. So you have to have people come to you more often than not, it sounds like. And is there um, any, any any concerns on your end with trust or anything like that of people knowing where you live or people knowing you probably have a ton of other inventory somewhere on your property or anything like that? Or is this something that over time you'll realize is not that big of a deal? How do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I do tend to, when I'm messaging with people, just try to take a quick look at the profile. I mean, and just see if, if things look normal-ish. Um, but... I've never felt too concerned about the Lego space. I mean, if I were selling diamond watches or something like that, yeah, I think my approach would be different. Um, but I have insurance, right? I have homeowner's insurance and I made sure that in the value of my my property, my or in the value of, you know, the my belongings, there we go, that my inventory is covered in that. And so in that sense, I mean, it's, I don't, except for a few items, I don't have an emotional attachment necessarily to the sets, which is the best way to go. I finally did sell those original Harry Potter sets and it was really a little bit traumatic for me, but um, I now don't have an emotional attachment to my sets. And so in that sense, um, you know, I just go, I choose to hope and believe in, in the goodness of people and we have appropriate security measures at our house. And so in that sense, um, you know, but I am a woman who, you know, I 
there's not a man living on the property. So that, that may affect people differently. Um, but for me, I'm, I've always felt pretty comfortable. You know, they don't come inside. I always go meet them outside. So, um, sometimes I have my dog barking in the background, so that helps as well. But, um, yeah, no, I've, yeah, I can't think of a situation in which I felt unsafe. A lot of times people, it's the people coming to pick up that tend to be, to feel more unsafe. I see, I feel like I see them come more in like twos, like, uh, sometimes women will come with a friend or, you know, a partner or something like that. And so it's worked, it's worked for a while. And, um, yeah, I haven't, I guess I, sometimes I think about that, but, and it's really not something that has been a big concern in my mind. Um, and I hope it stays that way. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we can just have security measures, have our insurance, have everything buttoned up. And, um, so you, I mean, you haven't had any bad experiences and that that's, uh, that's a plus. And you mentioned, um, I think too, in the Lego world, the people that tend to come are like Lego fanatics. Like they, they could be dangerous people, but they don't come across it. They show up wearing their like Star Wars shirts and stuff like that. And so, you know, I hope to believe I'm a good, I'd be able to suss out anything dangerous, but obviously you just never know. But I've been lucky that for now it's been a nice approach. It's the best community. That's, that's what it is. It's, it's just the best community. Right. Um, Obviously, one of the big benefits of Facebook is the fees. So there's no fees when you're selling locally, and you can you can sell at lower prices than what us Amazon exactly. sellers or eBay sellers can. And you can you know you can sell sooner. You can you can do things that we can't do because of the lack of fees. Put more profit in your pocket if you are selling at the same price. But usually, you can also sell lower and sell sooner. Um, how does that change your strategy from when you see what I do, for example, and Amazon, you see me talking about ROIs and my videos and different things. And um, when you are thinking about your calculations of ROIs, you don't have those fees. Do you sell sooner? Uh, do you do more um, quick flips and different things? Would you take more of a lenient approach on buying a new set, for example, so that you can sell it right away? Um, what's some of your strategy around that when it comes to dealing with the fact that you don't have any fees on Facebook? Yeah. So I think one of the ways that affects my approach is I always don't tend to look at brick brick link because the people that buy from me, um, they don't tend to use that as like view that as a source where they're trying to price out. So if I have had a few people say, Hey, this is cheaper on brick link. And I'm like, okay, you can get it on brick link if you want, no problem. But you also have shipping and maybe I don't remember if they charge tax or whatever. So I always make sure that I am when you consider shipping and tax, um, through eBay or, uh, Amazon's all in price. I always make sure I'm at least a little bit lower. If it's like a super rare set that I feel somebody might have instant need for and be like, I need to pick this up today or tomorrow. Sometimes I'll price whatever that, whatever that all in price is, and then say, I'm fine negotiating down a little bit, but I much prefer not to get into a, like give you my best price pretty much from the beginning and not get into negotiations because then I feel like that opens, I'm not saying I never do it, but I think it opens the door for you to just be taken lower and lower. And what if I buy this, then can you give me a deal on both of them? It's like, no, because they're both the lowest you'll find anywhere. And I feel like that tactic works well, especially with, um, you know, sometimes parents that are trying to buy Legos for the kid that Lego for the kid that don't have an understanding of 
necessarily how expensive Lego can be, especially retired sets. Yeah. Um, so I like, in the same way, I love to be able to say a set is 100% complete to turn to to get a sale of a set, especially on eBay. Um, I, you know, I like to be able on Facebook Marketplace to say, hey, this is the lowest you'll find if you, you know, take a look around and you'll see. And if you're still interested, come back and let me know. And that tends to work pretty well. Um, and then with respect to when I sell, yeah, I'd say um, some sets I've had luck turning them over quickly. Like I remember the Valentine's Day, I think it was the heart ornament. Uh-huh. and what was it this last year the, the the birds or something like that I just made like a two-pack and a lot of guys wanted that for their girlfriends and so I was able to sell some of those knowing that they're not retired sets but knowing that in a few days with um very minimal work you know I could make a decent profit or get the credit card points or whatever it is I'm after that is an approach I'll take and I think it's nice too because I'll take that more so if I see that is that is sold out in places. And honestly, I mean, you're delivering a service, right? Like you have, if, if there's one set available somewhere and you buy that set and I don't, I don't feel right about, you know, gouging it up. I, cause I have my own business model that allows me to live with my own ethics as everyone um, decides for themselves. But, you know, I have, found the one item in the area and by selling it on Facebook marketplace, somebody that's, that's looking for it, they're able to purchase it and have it, you know, for whatever they need it for instead of not being able to. Yes. Um, and so I, I do feel that that's an approach that, you know, kind of is win-win for everybody, right? If you, because sometimes like you don't even see a set as available. Uh, like, I don't know, my local Walmart is terrible about, saying when it's in store or not on Walmart. And so I just will drop by and sometimes I'll find that set. Like it, it was the new superstar destroyer, I think that that happened with. And I didn't ask for much more. I'm asked for maybe, you know, 15 bucks over the listing price or whatever, when people couldn't get it forever. And a gentleman who came by to get it was so happy. He was like, I couldn't find this anywhere. Yeah. And so it's, I, I mean, I kind of feel happy about being able to help people in a sense. And I'm not, you know, in a way that makes everybody, that's the thing about negotiation, going back to negotiation, is if you can't get everybody to feel that it was a win-win, you at least nobody want, you don't want anybody to feel like it was a lose, right? That each side at least walks away feeling like maybe that could have gone better, but I'm still, the outcome is better than not having had this outcome, if that makes sense. And you're achieving that simply by selling it at a price below what they could get it for online. You mentioned that right. you, you make sure that your price is below what they would have to pay with shipping and fees and everything on eBay. Right. And so they feel like they're getting a great deal, even if the price is double the MSRP. Uh, you know, that's a great deal for them because the set has dried up everywhere. If they don't buy it from you, they're going to have to pay more on eBay. And if they don't buy it from anybody, they don't get to finish their collection. And, you know, so it's a so the customer is going to feel great about buying from you you're going to feel great about the transaction as well. So that's a win-win situation. Um, so I definitely want to learn a little bit more about the credit card stuff because you are, you know, you came into the Lego investing business with a, a strategy in mind that you are going to fuel your travel because you love travel and you're going to do it by understanding the points game, right? And the points game yeah. where we use credit cards in, in, in creative ways to get free travel and to get upgrades and benefits and perks and different things like that. 
Often that involves putting money on your credit card, spending money. But as Lego investors, we can very easily spend money, right? And we can right. get the money back with the profit on top. But that gives you the opportunity then to put a lot of spend on your credit cards. So from a top-down helicopter view, would you just walk us through your overall point stacking strategy? Sure. What is, you know, how do you view all of this stuff? Um, what are some things that you think are important about it? And what are some areas that you don't focus on as much for, you know, people who don't even know what point stacking or what credit card churning or any of this stuff is all about? How do you look at the whole big picture? Sure. So, uh, yeah, I guess at the most basic level, um, credit card um, utilization, if you will, is this concept where you find a card that offers benefits that are useful to either giving you cash back. I think that's the one people are most familiar with, right? Having a credit card. I've had this conversation with my parents all the time, but we get 2% cash back, right? So like you buy something for X amount and then it's usually like two cents per dollar you get back if it's a two, you know, a double cashback card. But other cards will allow you to earn those rewards either complimentary to to choosing to get cash back. You can also choose or exclusively choose to get points um, that you can redeem for gift cards and different things or mile points for hotels or miles for airlines, right? So there are credit cards sometimes that are branded just for an airline or there are credit cards um, that have kind of their own system of a variety of points like Chase is a very good example. So my strategy when I was younger and had, uh, I suppose a little, little bit less disposable incomes and, and, and also hadn't had the taste of um, business class travel, <laughs> which I was exposed to through travel hacking, but also through work and kind of some nicer hotels. I mean, my strategy, you know, I was staying at hostels um, or maybe sharing a room in an Airbnb and just finding the cheapest flight I could get to get over to Europe, right? In my younger years, that's, I was 100% happy with that. I just wanted to be um, on vacation somewhere. And so my strategy was really about maximizing as many points as I could get across as many different programs as possible. Because I didn't care um, what plane, I didn't care what company I was flying. I didn't care who's um, hotel. If I was staying at a hotel I was staying at, maybe I just needed extra cash that, that month because I had spent too extravagantly, whatever, or it's Christmas or whatever the case may be. So it, my strategy at that point was really just about saying, okay, when I buy groceries, this American Express, the one I mentioned before, gives me 6% cash back. So I know I'm maximizing 6% there and it's just instant money back in my pocket. For travel and dining, this Chase card gives me three three points per dollar spent. Um, and so that'll be great because I can either purchase flights through their portal or I can transfer them to partners to fly. Or this, you know, uh, hotel card just for the annual fee, even if I don't spend another dollar on it, I get one free certificate every year. I can get four to five hundred dollars of value out of that certificate that I paid. $95 a year for that was my old strategy. And I think that's a fantastic strategy for anybody just really getting into the points and miles or getting into travel that hasn't necessarily um, taken a lot of uh, either like longer domestic trips or international trips just to get a sense of, oh, here's 
how I do the transfers, here's how I do the accumulation, things like that. That was my strategy for a while. And then, as I mentioned before, because of work travel, I started to travel, uh, like fly more exclusively with American Airlines and often stay at Hyatt properties. And the more I, in the same way I researched the heck out of Lego investing, you know, for years I've been following uh, One Mile at a Time, Point Sky, a lot of Frequent Miler, a lot of those sites. Um, YouTube channels and really just trying to get a sense of, okay, if I, it's less about just traveling wherever and more about having, I suppose, an elevated travel experience, where can I concentrate my spend? Um, don't get me wrong, I still sign up for new cards because the sign up bonuses sometimes like make it absolutely worth it to get that extra cash of points when you just can't find a, a good flight with American in my case or whatever. But my strategy now has really been concentrating my spend with American Airlines credit cards and Hyatt credit cards. And what's nice about that is they have, um, they have a relationship that when you fly with one or stay with one, uh, a paid flight or a paid hotel stay, you also earn points with the other. So that's a wonderful example of, I guess, wow. a double dipping type of scenario. Yeah. Um, so I'm happy to dive more into that, but I, one of the reasons I really love both of those programs is because they allow you to earn status exclusively through spend. Also, if you stay, which, I mean, if you want status, you probably should want to travel. It's no good to really have status if you never travel. Um, but if, for example, if you are ramping up your traveling, you're saying, Hey, next year, I want to go to the Paris Olympics, which I do, or next year we have our honeymoon. Um, it would be awesome to get a uh, free upgrade to first class or a free upgrade to a suite. Um, you know, you can earn status through spend. And then I think once you catch that travel bug, once you experience that, it, that's what happened to me anyway. You just like, you want to keep seeing the world. And obviously we only live once. So I think um, I, that's what I like about this being the focus of, my business in terms of generating these points is because then it's like, go spend them, go see the world, get out from behind your desk, don't get stuck in the same way, you know, lawyers, it happens to a lot of lawyers, when you have these side businesses, you can just devote all your hours to it. And then kind of for maybe forget the why of maybe your point was initially to go uh, see more of the world. So that's yeah. probably just got off an old tangent there. So you could bring me back. <laughs> And yeah, that was a fantastic overview. And I guess to to round it out, because you talked about, you know, how these cards can help you to earn and you can earn in all these different ways. And then you have tons of points or you have status with an airline or different things. And then you mentioned your why, which is to see the world. And this is so important to you. Um, let's bridge the gap in between, you know, the how to earn and then the the, the why, which is the travel. Um, what are the actual things you can do with those points? that are going to help you to see the world? What are some of the benefits that you get when you have all those points or you have those statuses that you've been able to enjoy? Yeah. So, I mean, the I think there are the direct benefits and then the indirect benefits. So the direct benefits are once you have the points or the miles, you can use those almost like cash, um, but without having to open your wallet, except for maybe some taxes and fees to purchase a plane ticket or to to 
reserve nights at a hotel. There are other options. Those are the two, if it's all right with you, I'll focus on because it's what I know the most about. Um, and I know in other resources that you have, you know, there are, you talk about sometimes paying yourself back and this and that. But the, for me, the two, because I think they have the highest return on investment, I always focus on using the points and miles to um, reserve flights and hotel rooms. And so I think what's interesting here is that you have, you already can get major value just by having the points and miles. And then when you earn status, either through spend or through stay, it's almost like this concept of um, like bootstrapping, right? You're pulling yourself up each time and it actually becomes the more you spend and stay, the easier it is to accrue points and to accrue free night certificates and to accrue status. And so even though it is designed to keep you there, that it's not like they make it harder, they make it each year you have to spend less and do less to keep the status and so that's what i think is really nice about these two programs in particular um and i think when you hit those higher levels your dollar that you originally you know would have spent even goes further and so i have an example if that's all right to kind of bring this into For a sure. concrete yeah. way of looking at it so it was my anniversary um about a month ago and I had been dying to go to one of the crown jewels, at least in, in the United States of the Hyatt properties, it's called um, Alila Ventana, it's in Big Sur, California, which if any of you guys have been there, just a magnificent place, just gorgeous, right? Some of the most rugged, beautiful coastline we have, certainly at least in the continental United States, extremely, extremely difficult to book on points, especially since they made it uh, all inclusive since I think during COVID they did that except for alcohol. So all the meals are included, snacks. Um, there's only, I think, uh, maybe 50, 55 rooms. I mean, you are in the Redwood Forest, all the accommodations, even from the most simple king room to the best suite. I mean, they're all beautiful, right? This is just an incredible property I've been wanting to stay at. And through using another wonderful tool, I was getting alerts when rooms would become available. And I finally saw standard room availability because, right, if you're booking a suite with points, sometimes that can actually, I mean, you can do it, but it requires usually double the points or miles. So the it became available a four night stay, which each night was 45,000 points. So 180,000 points altogether, um, Hyatt points, which if you have, you and your spouse each have a Chase credit card and you get the sign-up bonus. I mean, you've already basically met that amount. You have that amount in your account. Um, the paid room, just for a king room, which is what I booked with the points, would have been $11,300. I mean, the property is just, you can you could argue it's worth it. For me, I will never spend that amount of money on a property room, on, on a hotel room, I don't think, unless one day, you know, I hit the lottery or whatever. It's just, I, I couldn't do it. So that's for four nights, right? $11,300. Because I have Hyatt's top status, which is called globalist, I'm automatically eligible for upgrades if they have them. So we arrived and they told us we were upgraded to uh, one of the suites that had its own hot tub outside. I mean, just a beautiful room. The cost of this for four nights, $16,000. So I think if you do the math on 180,000 points to a $16,000 stay, I think it's like an 800% return, something like that. Um, I mean, 
you can argue, would I ever pay that for a room? Like I said, no. But the point is, these are such, these are experiences you'll, you just don't forget. I mean, we'll never forget this, right? This was absolutely worth those points and miles. Um, and so it is because, you know, I had put the spend on my Hyatt credit card and been staying at Hyatt and then um, other things like you get a free night award because you've stayed, you've earned 30 nights, but then with that free night award, it still counts as another night. And so it's just another instance of double dipping your way into like really, really nice perks um, that end up making you happier, I suppose, but can also actually save you money. Like one of the other, even if you stay at say just a, you know, a normal Hyatt hotel, if you have the top status, you get free breakfast. Um, so that's just direct savings to your pocket, right? You get, I think it's for family of four or whatever, and then you get free breakfast there. Or with American, even at their lowest tier status, which I think only would require, um, I think it's 40,000 points. So that could be $40,000. Or, you know, if you've flown or whatever, you get, for me, which has been one of the best benefits, you get priority access at the check-in line. I can't tell you how many flights that has saved me from missing because I'm one of those people that is like, ah, at what's the last minute we need to get to the airport with our carry-on and our TSA pre-check? And you just breeze through. So, you know, you combine that with other perks like lounge access. I mean, lounge access is saving you if two of you are eating dinner and having a few beers at the airport, that's easily $100 with the prices at the airport, right? So for me, that's when the benefit of buying Lego on my credit card uh, really started to come into focus. And another thing I like about it is that it means I don't necessarily have to buy things quite as low as other people, because the more I spend, the more points I get, which I'm not saying pay more if you don't have to. I'm just saying it lessens the sting if you don't necessarily get the 40% discount you wanted instead of the 20% discount. Right. So for me, it's just been a business model that has worked really well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you rounded it out real nicely there. But just to kind of summarize the big picture for Lego investors, it is, you know, Lego allows you to put so much money on your credit card. When you go, what we're talking about here is travel hacking, using points to get incredible like stays in hotels or, or flights for free. And when you go to a travel hacking community, people are going to be talking about how do I get, how do I manufacture spend on my credit card? How do I pay my mortgage on my credit card so I can, you know, get extra points for this flight that I want to take and different things. And they're all trying to come up with real creative ways to put spend on a credit card without buying stuff that they don't need because that just defeats the entire purpose lego investors we can put as much spend as we want because all your inventory can go on these credit cards and so then you're buying your inventory on your credit cards you're hitting uh you know you're getting all the points back to get your you know enough of 180,000 points that you just mentioned which got you the redemption of that hotel room but that hotel room was worth you mentioned 16,000 right which is you know it's you're getting that plus paying for no food for four days so whatever that costs and you know in california that's probably another thousand dollars of value right exactly and that value for free because of putting lego on your credit card and so it's extra if you really boil it all down it's an extra profit on top of your return on investment that you're going to get when you sell those lego sets that is a little bit harder to see for a lot of people but it's an extra profit in your life of great experiences of right. luxury travel of food of you know and other perks and now you also mentioned 
um, this idea of status and status, in my opinion, is where we start to get a little more advanced in the travel hacking world. Um, you start to double down on certain programs so you can reach status. And what is the idea behind status when it comes to some of the perks you can get? And also, can you take us through the idea of status matching a little bit? And, you know, what is that and what does that mean? Sure. Yeah. So the point of the for me, the best way to view it as the the point of having status is twofold, right? It's one, if you want to talk in money, it's a better return on investment, right? You've, you are getting more for your same dollar, essentially, because you have free things that are thrown in, um, because you are now basically the, the company views you as a more valuable customer, and they will do more to keep your business. And it's, I mean, it's a smart business strategy, because I do now kind of shape our vacations around um, to the extent possible, where can we stay at a Hyatt? Because I want that status again. And so it really, again, kind of this win-win situation. I mean, it works for the company and it works for the consumer. So, I mean, that's part of it. And then, uh, yeah, just having a more elevated travel experience, right? That's if that's something that you enjoy. And I think, Here's the thing about travel, at least the way Americans do travel. My, you know, my wife is from France. And so I see the way that I think I've seen the way different cultures ap approach travel. American travel is so stressful, right? You're just like, we got to be at the airport at 5 a.m. We got to do all these things because it's our one week of vacation. I mean, that's not that's not relaxing for anybody. I think it, you're just saying we, we're going to go somewhere to say we went somewhere. And so for me, it's really about almost forcing an extra element of relaxation into the experience by, like I mentioned, having lounge access or having priority access through the airport. Um, I mean, just having a lounge, we've all been in airports, right? When things are melting down and it is unbelievably chaotic. If you have lounge access, you can not only have a nice place to have some snacks and some drinks, they also have their own agents that can get you rebooked on other flights. And so I think it just helps make, yeah, it makes travel the enjoyable experience that you want it to be. For me, that's one of the reasons that status is important to me. Um, and then with status matching, this is not something I have done a ton of. I've played around with it, but it's, if you are somebody that really does generate a lot of spend and does a lot of travel, but hasn't really looked into this before, um, what a lot of airlines and I know some hotels would do as well is they want to win your business. They know you're staying, you're spending your dollars with the place that you have status. And so they say, hey, this is our chance to win you over. We will give you equivalent perks. Um, at least their version of whatever the same tier is. It doesn't mean the perks are the same, but whatever the same tier is, we'll give you this for a temporary period of time, say three months. And then if in that period of time you travel X or you spend X, then we will give you the stat, you will earn the same status for the rest of the year. And so it's almost like a free foot in the door to having status with more companies that a lot that requires a much lower threshold of spend or flying or staying activity. And so I thought I thought about doing it with some other airlines if I have an opportunity to because they only let you try if like once every few years you want to be strategic about it. So that's I'm waiting to see, hey, can I 
you know, do I have an international flight I can take with Delta or United so that I can at least earn status for longer? And then, yeah, maybe my loyalty does start to change a bit. Um, but that's the thing to remember is like you, they want your business, they want your loyalty. And so even if it's not written, you know, if you don't like, if it's not a written rule, you are entitled to X compensation. If you have a poor experience, and this is how being a lawyer has helped me as well, is kind of knowing how to, to just, send a business email but if you have a poor experience you know don't complain about a few hours delay or whatever unless something it causes you to miss this and then you miss this but if you have a poor experience and there's been a communication breakdown or whatever write them then if they offer you x amount of points you follow up and you follow up so those are the things that status really helps with i mean they treat you entirely differently you are their favorite customer i love it and you've just given so many really actionable things, you know, and even that last point about, um, you know, a lot of these credit card companies, the hotel chains, the airlines, they want to keep their customers. And that's why this reward programs, these status tiers, everything even exists. So yeah. if you are upset with something, a lot of the times they will give you points and different things to try and appease you. Um, a classic example of this is called a retention bonus that you can get from credit card companies. Uh, by telling them you want to cancel your card and they might give you 20,000, 40,000 points to right. keep you as a customer. A very standard thing and a quick way to to add extra points to your balance that you can then use for those ten, fifteen thousand dollars vacations. I love it. Absolutely love it. And then the last thing I want to just touch on real quick, Kate, is is um, if someone wanted to get started with all of this, um, what are some kind of quick tip or quick watch out um, type things for them to even consider getting into the world of travel hacking with credit cards while also being a Lego investor, any quick tip starts or quick start tips. Yeah. I'd say if you haven't, if you haven't really used credit cards very often, if you're not, you know, if this is something that's new for you, I would recommend putting status on the back burner and going with a credit card that, you know, potentially even has no annual fee and has, you know, a longer period of time for you to pay off your monthly uh, bills, maybe, you know, a year and a half where you're not accruing interest while you repay that card, right? If you're, if you're saying, hey, I'm getting in involved in Lego investing. Um, and that way you give yourself a chance to see how it works. You still earn points. Like there's one, I did this with a, a Capital One card. I had never had a Capital One card before. And I think it was a $2,000 spend on the card and it was 40,000 capital one points, which one of their transfer partners is you can transfer those miles to airlines and use them just like regular airline miles. One of them is Air France and I fly them fairly uh, frequently. So I would recommend either getting started with a card like that or getting started with, yeah, a card with a lower annual fee. Maybe you don't jump into necessarily these cards that have a four or five, $600 price point, because it's a lot of money to spend to not necessarily know how to, um, to use the points, but get open a card, meet the minimum spend. That's number one, make sure you meet whatever their minimum spend is to get the points you, or you won't get that big bonus, right? There's usually a big bonus at the beginning, spend yeah. $3,000, an X in three months and you get this many points. Make sure you do that and then go educate yourself. That's the best advice I can give because that's always been my philosophy. There are tons of wonderful resources out there. I mentioned the points guy and um, 
one mile at a time or two that I really liked when I was getting started. And they still all the time are doing, you know, introductory articles, which is nice, right? They're not just only focused on the advanced concepts now that they've been around for so long. They really are, uh, do a great job at explaining in, in a simple way how this works. And give yourself some grace. There's going to be trial and error, right? You're going to make a redemption. I'm sure at some time that you're like, ah, that wasn't that great of a redemption. I wish I'd gotten better, um, uh, you know, a better point per dollar value, but it have, you know, that's the fun of it, right? It's free travel either way. So it's pretty hard to go wrong. Love it. I absolutely love it. And, you know, this is just, I think for some people watching this, this might be just sudden unlocking of a whole door that you never knew existed with Lego investing. And, you know, and the way Kate has broken it down for us here and the way Kate has seen Lego investing as a way to fuel the, the uh, possibilities when it comes to travel hacking, it should really be an eye opener for all of us because the uh, the profit that you can get into your life, the extra profit, that's really what it is at the end of the day. It is extra profit that you can get on your Lego investment. Uh, you know, it's substantial and it can really add up to being a lot. It can add a lot of extra things to your life. So, Kay, thank you so much for for breaking it all down for us. And um, thank you also for your tips and, and your experience on Facebook Marketplace. It is an area that I think some people, I think it would benefit them greatly to actually put more attention yeah. to Facebook Marketplace with their uh, Lego. And I do have one parting tip on that. Sometimes it's the yeah. smallest things that can kind of change how efficiently we work. I had, I don't know where I got this tip, but one of the things that has really helped me um, improve the speed of making listings has been doing them on my phone and by creating text replacement. So my entire description, right, in either my Facebook marketplace, like where I'm saying, pick up in this neighborhood, smoke-free home, or on eBay when it's like, whatever my return policy is, rather than having to type that out each time or even copy and paste it from a note, paste it all in text replacement, you give it some name like eBay, and then you type that and it all self-populates. To me, that changed the game. I started listening so much more when I learned that. That So, okay, that is such a golden nugget of information that I'm going to repeat it. Um, on your phone, you can do a text replacement in the settings. You can set up, if the word eBay is typed, I want you to, I want the phone operating system to replace that word with all this other text. You set up the listing basics, which is, you know, some piece of information about all of your listings that are not specific to the single set, such as smoke-free home or, you know, pick up from this location or whatever, um, uh, quality guaranteed, whatever you want to add to your listing into that. So then whenever you just quickly type that one word in your listing, when you're listing the item, it's going to replace all that stuff. Save a ton of time. I love that. That's a great tip. Okay. Thank you so much for being here and thanks for being gracious with your time. Uh, I know you've got a lot going on in your world. So uh, yeah, and this has been great. I think there's there's just so much learnings. I learned a lot. I'm sure everybody is going to learn a lot from this. So thank you so much uh, for your time and hopefully we'll catch up again in the future and learn even more. Yeah, I'd love that. I'd love to drill down even deeper into some of these con concepts and uh, get some stories from people maybe that have learned some stuff as well. And it was great to be here with you. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star rating. It really does help us to bring you amazing content. And if you want to learn more about building an income with Lego, check out BrickBox.net or find us on YouTube at BrickBox to learn about Lego investing.